Welcome to the Med Faber Show, where the focus is on helping you grow and preserve your wealth. Join us as we discuss the craft of investing and uncover new and profitable ideas, all to help you grow wealthier and wiser. Better investing starts here. Matt Faber is the co-founder and chief investment officer at Cambria Investment Management. Due to industry regulations, he will not discuss any of Cambria's funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Cambria Investment Management or its affiliates. For more information, visit cambriainvestments.com. Welcome, my friends. We got a fun episode today. Our guest is Thomas George, president of Grizzle and portfolio manager of the DARP ETF. In today's episode, Thomas talks about investing in disruption at a reasonable price, or DARP for short, and the key word in there being reasonable. He talks about the sector and thematic focus of the ETF, including some areas outside of tech, like energy and uranium. He also talks about takeaways from the 2022 sell-off in the growthier parts of the market. And as we wind down, he walks through the performance of Amazon since its IPO and why it makes for a perfect case study for disruption at a reasonable price. This episode is brought to you by 10 East. Longtime listeners know I've invested in private markets quite a bit myself, but with access to these markets broadening, it can be hard to know where to find vetted high quality offerings. That's where 10 East comes in. Tennis is a platform where qualified investors can co-invest on a deal-by-deal basis across private equity, private credit, real estate, venture, and other one-off opportunities typically unavailable through traditional channels. They're founded and led by Michael LaFell, who spent his early career building Davidson Kempner and who invests material personal capital in every offering they bring to the platform, aligning interests with Tennis members who co-invest at their discretion. Join numerous founders, executives, and portfolio managers from leading investment firms who use 10 East to diversify their personal portfolios. Inquire for membership at 10East.co. That's the number 10East.co. Please enjoy this episode with Thomas George. Thomas, welcome to the show. Hey, nice to be here. Thank you, Matt. Where is here? Where do we find you? Toronto. Toronto most of the time. It's a good town. You're all over the place. What's the vibe in Toronto right now? We've gotten like extra innings, if you will, or overtime for summer. Like it's plus 20 in Celsius here. It's super nice. So it's been an incredible. I went swimming in Lake Ontario early October, which I'd never done in my life. So yeah, it's been super nice. We're going to talk about all sorts of fun stuff today. It's hard to pin you into a certain category of investor because you got interest in a fair amount of different things. I've known you for a little bit, but I want to hear a little origin story. Give me the grizzle origin story to kind of how you got to what you're doing today. I did engineering at Waterloo. It was good. And I got an exposure to Bay Street and stocks through some of my internships. And, you know, you catch the bug, right? And I was like, listen, I, I need in, right? But I was doing back office. I started at City. I was doing back office for derivatives trading. I'm like, I need a taste of that front office, that classic fight towards it, right? Anyways, I ended up graduating. It was in 02 recession. Nobody was offering any full-time jobs. I had a lot of good friends at TD. I got a gig as like a tech assistant on basically servicing the front office. And it was a six-month contract. If this is my pitch, I got to go. I got to swing here. Long story short, six months, I ended up turning that into a full-time gig. My role was portfolio analytics. Being on a trading desk was so much fun. I'd come in and the whole stand-up comedy of the markets if you really want to make it as a player, like in terms of like, nobody can say another word, you start off on a trading desk and literally it was a jungle. It was the best. We recently rang the bell at CBOE a couple weeks ago to celebrate kind of 10 years on ETFs and Big Crowd is an actual bell. And there's probably, I don't know, 100, 200 traders still on the floor. It's a pretty cool room. And you ring the bell when it turns green. Don't do it before because literally they're trading. And so everyone will get furious at you. They had a timer that said 1 p.m., whatever it is in Chicago. Or no, excuse me, it's the CBOE, so it's actually later. So whatever it is, 15, 30 minutes after the hour. I can't remember, it was only a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. But they're like, the traders are going to place a bet on you on how many bell rings you get. There's an over-under. And I was like, well, what's the over-under? He's like, I'm not telling you. But I was like, in my head, I'm like, I'm going to do like 50. <laughs> Like, I'm up here. I got my shot. I'm not going to be like, ding, ding. And then like, see you later. Like, I'm going to ring this for the cows coming home for like a minute. 
And so I get up there and sure enough, it happens and, and I start ringing it. But this bell is so loud that after like the second dong, I'm like deaf in one ear. <laughs> and so I got to like, I think 15, maybe uh, I wanted to go at least 20. But apparently the over under is only around eight because most people do it. They whiff the first one because you got to do it pretty hard. And then they come back and then they're just like shell shocked. That's commendable, right? You were on the high end of it. Yeah, you would have taken the over, but you're right in the sense that there's nothing like a trading floor. There's nothing like you walk around the bank. There's a energy and excitement that's hard to translate. And particularly, you mentioned portfolio analytics. That's actually a pretty great training ground because it teaches you a lot about position sizing and portfolio math that I think that it gets skipped over so much on people's introduction to investments. It's sort of like I was telling my wife the other day, I said I was also an engineer and how many ever courses in math I took. I said, the one that I didn't take that I use on a daily basis more than anything was statistics. So portfolio analysis is very much like a statistics type of introduction. All right. So walk us forward. Keep going. That's exactly what it was. I had this brain that was could do the math stuff. You know, I wanted to get into the other side of investing, but it was a perfect marriage. And if I look at it now, that starting period of portfolio analytics ended up becoming my bedrock where I'm still like, that is truly like the one sustaining thing that I just really think it's an incredible skill set that you develop through time. It becomes this innate math statistics. It's that idea of coming back to what you said, position sizing. That's what they don't teach you. I can be a doctor for a lot of portfolios when I can see immediately that this PM doesn't know how to position size. Twitter's amazing. And obviously that's how we connected. And there's a lot of great illuminaries on Twitter, but there's a lot of short sellers, legendary ones. And I knew one that won't say his name, but very vocal on a particular stock. You'd be like, this guy has a lot of knowledge about this and he's got to express it in a certain way. Guess what his position size was? I finally asked him out loud. I'm like, what's your position size in this? Just curious. 13 beeps. I'm like, the fuck? 13 beeps? For all of this gas, all of this Huff and puff, 13 beeps? For the non-beeps crowd, that's 0.13%. I have a similar story. I remember talking to a very, very wealthy friend of mine, hundreds of millions, if not billions, and I was watching him give a speech, and he's like, I'm going huge into whatever it was. Let's call it gold. I don't know. I pulled him aside after, and I was like, hey, like when you say huge, like what does that mean? And he was like, I took it from like, 2% to 4%. So I doubled. And I was like, yeah, but like to be clear, it's still only 4%. Like there's people in the audience that heard that and thought you're like 95%. It's like all my crypto friends, there's either zero or a hundred and like that's it or 200% if you're leveraging it. Anyway, you always got to ask because their approach to position sizing is very different. I always think about it is I've got a certain amount of information, insight into the market my value add is how can I then project that onto the portfolio that brings the most added value to the investor in our product? So if I'm finding I'm spending an inordinate amount of time on a particular idea, and I think I'm only going to keep it at a small position, that doesn't make sense. I should be spending a majority of my time percentage weighted for the most part. All right. So what was next? What point you get into resources? Was that next? You're getting the extended long version of, of the origin story. I usually have an elevator pitch for this stuff, but I was on the desk. I was very fortunate to get an opportunity to go to London, England, to join the international equities team as a portfolio analyst there. It was a small team. That's when I transitioned from portfolio analytics to quant. The whole idea is we were covering EFI, which is Europe, Asia, Far East, huge geography. Unless you have a system to whittle down the universe. If you're a fundamental portfolio manager, you're kind of lost to see, if you will. It can be very, very hard. So you kind of need a framework to put it all together. And that's where I met my mentor, Charles Edwards Kerr, who was a Japanese fund manager, one of the best. He'd oscillate between one and two globally. He really taught me a lot about momentum investing. Like Japan was the original momentum market and momentum and growth investing. I was there and really, that was really my spark that's when I made the transition from portfolio analytics to equity research at this whole same time I was doing my CFA, obviously, to augment my engineering background with finance. So I was in the UK doing this. And then I my first pick there, which my most memorable investment, I was just looking it up. It ended up being a 21 bagger today. But literally, it was my first thought. I was reading Investor's Chronicle. The UK had these like all these magazines I was reading. I was like, 
Aviva. These guys were doing like 3D engineering design software. I thought it was super interesting. I told at the time, he was a portfolio manager. Now he's head of TD Asset Management, Bruce Cooper. I said, listen, this is interesting. I was just trying to make my nudge into stock picking. I said, listen, this is an interesting stock here. I know it's something I know about. I know about engineering. It was like AutoCAD, but like these guys were doing 3D AutoCAD. I'm like, this seems super cool. Their office was in Cambridge, England, and we ended up taking the train to meet the CEO. There couldn't be a more textbook first opportunity to stock picking to put in an institutional portfolio. It was a fairy tale. Ends up going up like 150% the following year. Like it was just like all the, like it was an incredible story and it was incredible company. I hadn't kept pace with it. It had remained in the portfolio for years after, but looking at it now, it just comes back to that classic. When you find a great business, just don't sell it. That's the hard part, man. I was going to make the joke where I was like, congrats on the 21 bagger. And now it's a hundred bagger. So that's (laughs) that's the whole key is the holding, right? Exactly. 21 bagger from the point we identified it. I think we probably sold it at a five bagger or something like that class. Yeah, totally. Bunch of pikers. Where in the timeline are we now? Are you ready to start your own shop or is we still got a little more in between? So anyways, come back to Toronto. I'm a full analyst covering international energy, materials, utilities, like anything that like is physical. My background was environmental engineering. So it was a good mix. And there was a big revolution in Europe with renewables. I was covering that on the utility side. I ended up then taking over the flagship resource portfolios at TD, which in Canada, obviously a big resource investing market. The precious metals fund would have been one of the largest in the world. And we had an energy fund that was quite big and a resource fund. It was phenomenal. And at the same time, obviously I'm looking at, we're investing in growth as well. And then I met Scott Willis, my partner at TD, and my good friend, Chris Wood, who was at the time chief strategist at CLSA. We forged a friendship through the years. And the three of us, myself, Scott, Chris Wood, decided we should take a shot here and start something different. And that different was Grizzle. That was started in 2018. And the explicit goal of Grizzle at at that point was just like, listen, obviously our net end goal is to put our flag in the ground for asset management and hit the dingers out the park, if you will. But before we do that, we got to prove our credibility to the street. And we were just in a very unique period in 2018. Social media ended up just really accelerating. And our first piece we put out, Scott authored this incredible piece, Up and Smoke, the Overvalued Haze of Canadian Pot Stocks. That was early 2018. The hype around it, it was social media and all those sorts of stuff. I literally thought, we were going to get like a Molotov cocktail through our front of our offices. And listen, take the office address off the website. It was a great way to get our name known. But we were like, listen, the valuations here simply don't make sense. If you think about it, that was kind of the origin story of DARP, disruption at a reasonable price. As we applied it to cannabis, we said a lot of these stocks have 90% downside and the pricing went through that itself. For us, like that was kind of our first foray into DARP. But obviously, you can be short stuff. This classic, it's overvalued, overvalued. You can say things are overvalued everywhere. The harder part is to say, where do you want to go long that really can sustain that? We've had our pulse on every facet of growth, disruptive growth, back to our hallmark commodities as well through the last five years. And then we started the Grizzle Growth ETF DARP in that period. Let's dig into some of the Grizzle Growth ideas Listeners, for full disclosure, my firm owns this ETF, and also we liked the product so much, we reached out to partner up with the Grizzle crew on this and maybe potential new funds. But what I was attracted about what you guys are doing, when people say disruption, so often in my head, it means one thing, and they think tech, and tech at any cost, any price. And there's certainly some of your competitors that I imagine the listeners will conjure an image of when you think of the last handful of years. What was interesting to me about y'all in particular, in addition to your research, which you put out a lot of great content, was some of the themes and ideas seemed quite a bit different than what I think of when I think of someone talking about disruption in tech. And more importantly, the phrasing of DARP, which is disruption at a reasonable price, which to me as a value guy certainly resonates. So give us a little bit of the broad framework of how you think about this strategy, and then we can dig into all sorts of different pieces. Nice to be part of the family. Thanks for seeing the magic here. Big picture, when I think about disruption, this is the new reality. And you're seeing it both on a consumer level and on the tech. Technology obviously is an accelerant for disruption. It is the new reality. So when I think about evolution, there was 
GARP, which is growth at a reasonable price. But that was at a period where things didn't change that dramatically. A value investor would say, oh, you know, that's kind of crazy. You're looking out two years there. Get forward two years, PE. And now you've got to take that bet on a forward five to six years where it gets a little harder. So the way we think about it, and you've highlighted it well, is when the current framework of disruption is at this disruption at any price, DAP, for lack of a better acronym. What's DAP? DAP is like, I'm going to sell you like this shiny thing here, this shiny thing there. It's going to be amazing. Flying cars to the moon. Like all of it is very sensory overload. Great. Phenomenal. Like you're like, yeah, sign me up. But it's not tethered from a financial basis. The whole idea is I'm giving you a picture 10 years out into the future. It's going to be amazing. You're going to love it. The portfolio is going to rocket ship. To predict ideas 10 years out in the future is so damn hard. Things change so dramatically, especially when you have no valuation basis. It becomes a very hard thing to do. When we thought about our DNA and how we look at things, obviously our view is very different where we believe a great idea is phenomenal in itself. There's a ton of great ideas out there, but you have to inherently link it to cash flow. You have to. There has to be a link to how do I get paid as an investor? Because if I can't think through the business model and say, okay, yeah, actually, this can be a cash flow juggernaut. I get it may not be a cash flow juggernaut today, but they're laying that foundation for five to six years in the future to really rip it. And it could be anywhere between now to six years. But the main point is beyond six years, it gets very hard. It gets incredibly hard to really vision that. And so when you think about where DARP is, so we're not DAP, which is disruption at any price. And I call that like science fair disruption. It's the kind of stuff you kind of walk through. You're like, oh, wow, that you're right. Like, that, that sounds like a really interesting idea. And it's a lure of the magic of disruption versus we're the tangible side of disruption where this is a real product that is going to change the world you're living in in the next six years. And we know the business model can support a real cash flow inflection in that time frame. And we think that now on a valuation adjusted basis, it's an attractive investment. And that really is DARP. It's that looking for opportunities with cash flow inflection within six years. The nice thing about your background and training in the resource world is the resource world, if there's ever any place that's good training for this area, it's resources. Because my God, how many companies are they say, you know what? I got promise of a bunch of gold down in this hole, or my goodness, this mine. And of course, they throw a bunch of money in and then nothing comes out and vice versa. But that Canadian education you got and resources, I think is very fertile training ground for looking same thing. A lot of these tech companies or other type of companies and saying, okay, there's some sizzle here, but like actually is it turning into cash flows or is it just going to a bunch of the CEOs, a stock-based comp or something? 100%. Let's talk about a few of the themes you talk about. Resources have a lot in common with high growth and disruption. It's the promise of a multi-bagger. The proof is always in the pudding where, where is this thing out? And so in resources, there are sweet spots. There's points where it's far riskier and you're always trying to think of how do I de-risk this? Are all the elements of de-risking here? And if they aren't, and you know, hope and a dream and, and a good drill result, you're going to be in some trouble. So when I'm looking at the portfolio, and I'll let you take it from here, number one holding Microsoft, which had a good day today. Congratulations. So that's traditional tech. But I'm looking at some of the themes on your website, and they're not necessarily traditional tech. So maybe let's walk through some of the themes that you guys are particularly focused on here in late 2023. Not cannabis. No. Not- <laughs> which, by the way, it's funny you identified it 2018, because We did some old research looking at sectors and industries, and it's almost extremely rare to see an industry that goes down six years in a row, which is where cannabis is in since you guys were talking about 2018. So six years in a row, I think coal may have the record. It was around six or seven years we wrote about it. And uranium was also in there, which I know you're a fan of. But give me some themes. We were pretty bearish on the Canadian side. We thought there would be an uplift on the U.S. side, but as time has come, and I'm talking cannabis here, it's just, it's been a tough go for investors. And I feel for them. Uranium is an interesting one. We we talk later. It's a small position in the overall ETF. I think there's an interesting opportunity right now, but again, it's risk-weighted in the portfolio. If it happens, it happens. But if it doesn't, it's not going to be a mortal wound. Let's hear it. Start with some of the themes, wherever you want to go, and we'll hit on all of them. Big picture. I just think looking at disruption is two key things going forward. Technology is clear and there. There's no question about that. Like that's 
a mainstay of disruption. But the differentiated aspect of disruption for us is our commodity exposure. We believe that functionally that commodities are a key input into the disruptive vectors that everyone talks about, particularly EVs and lower emissions future. So for us, we think the value capture is not on the downstream electric vehicles, the windmills, if you will. I think all of the opportunity set is in the commodities themselves. And that's where we sit right now. So you have for us two key areas. We think in the new environment, higher interest rates, and particularly with AI on tech, we believe that that's a game for big companies. And that's how we're exposed to that. We think it's real. This is not crypto. This is not promising. And when I say crypto, I'm saying ex-Bitcoin, but this is not all the promises of crypto and all the what we're seeing in AI is factual and it's real. I've never seen anything get adopted this quickly, not just by myself, but you know, seeing my son use it for homework. It's an absolute game changer. At the enterprise level, I think that's where it gets significant with respect to the productivity improvements that it drives out. It could be anywhere 20, 30%. I think we're just starting to scratch the surface of what it means. It's going to be powered by chips. We're long NVIDIA, AMD. Microsoft is clearly at the enterprise. Like If you're going to get that productivity out, likely you'll be using a Microsoft suite of products to do it. We just had to update for some unknown reason as you start to go through all these compliance gatekeepers. It was a really big one at one of the big wirehouses. The number one gateway was said, you guys use Dropbox? Mm -mm. No, sorry. You got to upgrade to Microsoft. I was like, really? I was like, Dropbox isn't like some tiny startup. I was like, that's a pretty big, and they're like, no, got to do Microsoft. It's like, okay, well, there you go. So you got a new subscriber. All right, keep going. From our perspective, that is the one where right now everyone's like, okay, listen, where does this come out? We think Microsoft, the valuation makes a ton of sense. It's going to be at the core of this. It's interesting, right? When you look at the last growth cycle that basically ended in 2022, just before we launched DARP, that was really a hallmark of a lot of companies, small and mid-sized companies that were driving disruption. That chapter, what happens, an interesting thing happens when you get higher interest rates and valuations start to peel off is that you realize, wait a minute, especially with AI, particularly, it's a game that's capital intensive, higher interest rates, all of these hurdles really stack up against that small and mid cap fertile ground for growth stocks in the COVID era, like the COVID boom, if you will. And so we think that right now you're in the flip side of that, where it makes a ton of sense. Like we still look, we still absolutely look, but right now we're expressing more of our small and mid cap exposure on the resource side. All right. Well, tell us about it. Give us a little bit. On the resource side, we think natural gas is truly the most underrepresented opportunity in most everyone's portfolio. So I joke around, commodities themselves are not in vogue. You know, that's where you are. Commodities aren't in vogue themselves. Natural gas is the like least liked commodity. There's tons of oil bros. When I go on Twitter, look at all oil bros. Like, you know, I know a lot of them. Good people, good people, great people. Lots of geopolitical chit chat. The other, you know what there aren't? There aren't any natural gas bros. Me and like three other guys, natural gas bros. And I love that. We're literally the only natural gas bros. We're like, this is the best full stop commodity there is. It doesn't have the sizzle of geopolitics. There's a ton of analysts for oil. I know a ton of oil analysts, but how many natural gas, like talking the commodity, this is all good stuff. You have a ton of this analysis on the oil side. Everyone talking, oh, you got a view. I'm like, I want to be on the side where no one's talking about it. A lot of the reason is, oh, well, natural gas is cheap. It's a commodity no one wants to love. I'm like, I don't know. Right now, when we look at our portfolio, our natural gas names are up 30% this year. And natural gas is three bucks. In Canadian commodity investing, you learn from a lot of mentors and they help you frame up. My first CIO, John Pepperall, a great guy. He would bring me off. He's like, listen, you're covering commodities. Let me just give you a little bit, little advice here. You can never really predict the commodity price. So to insulate yourself, you better be owning the company that's growing their production. But in this case, I'd say, I don't know where the natural gas price is going. I just want to make sure that at a high level, volumes are increasing. When you look at a big picture here, global LNG volumes are going to double over the next 10 years, double. And so from our perspective, I want to be owning that. There are a few scenarios where we could be potentially using less oil. I don't subscribe to them, but 
there are pathways here in the probability setup that we could potentially use less oil, obviously on the EV side, eating into that. There's no scenario that I look at where we're using less natural gas. None. Zero. I say, listen, why wouldn't I want to use the commodity that just ticks all the boxes? You don't believe in climate change? I get it. But listen, it already has half the CO2 of coal. So let's take that off. But the biggest issue right now is that in the emerging markets, it's air quality. It really is air quality. So socks, when you think of the things that come together to make air pollution, socks and knocks, natural gas has 100% less socks than a coal-fired power plant. 60% less knocks than a coal-fired power plant. These are huge numbers. So you don't even have to believe the CO2 side of it, but why wouldn't you want to just take all of it? It's the ultimate pill. So from our perspective, cavemen were using wood and all that stuff. We moved on because we're bigger people. Like, you know what I mean? Like humanity moves on. How are we still stuck on coal? This is kind of my soapbox being a natural gas bro because I have to. There aren't a million of us out here. It's like me. I was laughing because we had John Arnold, who's like the OG Nat Gas bro on the podcast a while back, but he's like mostly retired to foundation and charity work now. Bottom line is, is that we're looking at a really historic opportunity where we can upgrade the entire electricity system of the world, particularly in Asia, but definitively in, in North America as well, where we can look at this thing called coal and say, yeah, that's kind of obsolete. I have a fireplace, but it's all just aesthetic stuff. It fills my house with smoke. I don't necessarily like all the stuff that's involved with it. It's kind of nice. It just looks nice. There's not even that for coal. There's nothing redeeming about it. From a high-level perspective, it's still an important part of the energy mix. But when I think bigger picture, there's a book Amroy Lovins wrote, and he coined the phrase the negawatt. It really kind of shaped the way I think about efficiency and how something can be like really powerful. If you want to do something, reduce emissions, etc. Well, the best thing to do is add to negawatt things, put in an efficient light bulb, etc. Those things have like immediate ROI. That's negawatt. What doesn't have an immediate ROI is solar, is wind. Those aren't on the negawatt scale. Natural gas is the perfect negawatt. You don't have to incentivize the thing. It just does it. So when I think about all the subsidies that have been spent in Europe, in America, I don't know, someone's done a tally on this, massive amounts of money with the hopes of building new industries, which we basically, they just subsidize industries in China. Let's be frank. You've got no economic output. <laughs> this is so far away from a megawatt. It's crazy. So when I think about where we sit right now, we have the biggest, fattest megawatt opportunity in natural gas. And we're kind of like dragging our feet as a global collective when all it could take is maybe just a little bit of subsidization, which I guarantee you Shell and Exxon, et cetera, would actually subsidize for free if we actually cut all the red tape and say, listen, let's have regasification facilities in India. Dot the coast with it. Do that for Asia. Let's subsidize the regasification. Let's give it for free. Make it the most abundant commodity in that scenario, which no one talks about. It's a grizzle scenario. Oh my gosh. You'll look back and say, oh, I didn't have enough natural gas. This is a commodity where I'm like, I didn't have enough of that stuff. So what I'm calling for, literally, it's called to arms, the Manhattan Project of natural gas. I like the sounds of it. Are there's traditional companies that are easy to play that theme? And like, so as you guys think about a theme, do you start top down or is it really bottom up or both? Do the names show you the opportunity and bubble up? Going back to our original discussion, how do you position size the theme in the portfolio? It is top down for us. We're looking for opportunities where we think, okay, listen, this will have an above average rate of growth relative to the market. We're growth, so we're always sniffing around. And then you're going to do a high level just valuation screen. Is this just really pie in the sky? And that still doesn't stop us from looking at that because you don't want to be just like shutting away things that literally you could be just around the corner opportunities that may be super expensive just on a where we sit right now. But once you look into the tech, it's just like, OK, this could really, really work. That's kind of your first sniff. And then from there, we then look at at evaluation foundation. We're like, OK, assess the growth, the health of the sector, the health of the company just the profitability of where they are right now. And when you look at putting all of those pieces together, we're like, wow, natural gas should have a very significant weighting in the portfolio. So this is coming back to the portfolio analytics side of it. We do a lot of portfolio 
analytical testing. We look at how the volatility of the overall portfolios, something we're very proud of. Obviously, we, our performance, everyone talks about performance. We're very proud of our volatility. Not a lot of people talk about being proud of that, but that really is for us a testament of our portfolio construction in the respect of like, okay, listen, we know how volatile this is. We know the correlation it is to the other assets. So we think about the overall mix of it. And so basically with just around 40 holdings, we're literally, we have a volatility less than the NASDAQ 100. The volatility becomes important. I think a lot of people get confused between average or kind of compound returns and these, what we call volatility gremlins certainly eat into the difference. We were talking about Dave Ramsey the other day where he was talking about he gets 13% on his funds. And I said, he actually, I think probably believes he gets 13% because he's looking at the average yearly returns, but because of the volatility, the compound return is probably going to be down around like 11, maybe even 10. The more volatile an investment is, certainly you have the chance for these gremlins to get into your portfolio too. So lower vol on average is better, but we all like up vol, which is things going up. It's the down vol we don't like. I had a great example for that, you know, a little DARP in a test tube. I don't know if you want to go through that, but I'm still talking about construction on this. But then we think about, okay, listen, how does the opportunity fit if the valuation's right? And in natural gas, we did a full piece on it is basically getting paid to wait in the oil and gas sector and is incredible. So balance sheets have never been as healthy as they are right now. They're basically dividending out or buybacks. You're getting full return of capital. It's incredible. So we were looking at names. We were looking at a host of names that were having yields in near double digits, right? Like eight to 10% dividend yields. Cord Energy is a name. It's a top 10 holding. For us, it's got an 8% yield. When you look at this entire opportunity set on the energy side and whether maybe you think about it energy in general or just natural gas specifically what what is the kind of position sizing for the whole fund look like right now is it like five percent so it's 17 percent of the fund and i think a lot of people when they think disruption wouldn't automatically think this i just listened to a long great talk on talking about nuclear but this is like a value and a growth guy end up in a bar you and i a lot of the energy names that have been popping up into our portfolio because it goes back to the ARP process that you're talking about, which is the cash flows have to be there. And many of the energy names certainly fit that category, whether we end up being right or wrong on a TBD. But it certainly popped up a lot with these big dividend buyback yields, which to have those, you have to have the cash flow in the first place. There's that aspect of, listen, this is a huge opportunity. Then we take it down to the next level, which is basically we then apply fundamental quant. I was head of fundamental quant at TD. So basically our fundamental equity team. So this is quant quant team, but this is like within the fundamental equities, I was running fundamental quant. We were basically helping to whittle down the universe to stock selection as it matched every portfolio manager's style. And so for us, we're growth. So one of our opportunities, we believe big picture general quant can't capture growth. Growth is much more specific. It's much more bespoke. So most say it's, well, it's unquantifiable. It's harder to quantify disruptive growth. We take a different view. It is quantifiable, but you just have to do a lot more legwork on it. So for us, then the next part of the process is basically creating a fundamental quant process screen, if you will, then that basically guides how we think about the sector. We publish that openly in terms of how we think about it. And that's how we land on names. When we think about natural gas, particularly, we're truly blessed on the oil and gas side. Generally, you have these characteristics where we believe the growth will be disruptive, significantly higher than the market, but you're getting paid right now. Like that's just incredible. From our perspective, it's an incredible anchor for our portfolio, along with the Microsofts as well. That's a portion of the portfolio. What else do you want to talk about? You got a thing for health. What else is in this portfolio type of themes? We had historically had some names in there. It's not the right point in the cycle right now. And as you can imagine, that's on the further end of dark. We are a genuine believer. We're in a world where health matters. And obviously we've covered cannabis. We know what cannabis can do. Psychedelics, uh, incredible emerging sector as well. But again, in the current interest rate environment, it's just, it's not as exciting for us in the here and now. We'll come back, but it's not an opportunity we're adding to the portfolio. With the U.S. stock market near peak valuations, is it time to look elsewhere? The Cambria Emerging Shareholder Yield ETF, ticker symbol EYLD, 
focuses on high cash distribution companies located in emerging markets. EYLD's process goes beyond focusing on just dividends alone to include buybacks and debt paydown, a trio collectively known as shareholder yield. The result is a portfolio of companies that rank highly on shareholder yield and offer strong free cash flow characteristics. Learn more about the Cambria Emerging Shareholder Yield ETF by visiting cambriafunds.com slash EYLD. Again, that's cambriafunds.com slash EYLD. Cambria funds are distributed by Alps Distributors, Inc. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of capital. To determine if this fund is an appropriate investment for you, carefully consider the fund's investment objectives, risk factors, charges, and expense before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's full or summary prospectus, which may be obtained by calling 855-383-4636, ETF info, or visiting our website at www.cambriafunds.com. Read the prospectus carefully before investing or sending money. International investments may involve risk of capital loss not associated with domestic investing. Companies can be paying out more than they can support and may reduce their dividends or stop paying dividends at any time. What are some of the things, anything else you're particularly thinking about that you're excited about in the portfolio, whether up, down, in between, anything that's setting off some alarm bells in a good way? So covered off the natural gas side, <laughs> natural gas pros. So that I think is truly like one of the most undercovered opportunities. It's going to be huge. $3 natural gas in North America. You add a buck 50 to send it to Europe. It's cheap, cheap to send it to Europe. You add $4 LNG to send it to Asia. North America can supply the world. You have it in a world that respects your right to extract the commodity and get paid for it. That doesn't exist everywhere. So all of it, it really just spells a great opportunity there. The other side that for us is intriguing as well, it's that idea is we don't own Tesla. We may in the future, but we don't own any electric vehicle car companies right now. If you think about it, that's kind of the antithesis of a lot of the disruptive funds out there. Like someone will own it at a very high percentage we know competitors that own it anywhere from 10 to 25 plus percent. For us, that feels like a crowded trade in the multiple doesn't make sense for us. But we think, okay, listen, we're not bears on electric vehicles by any means, but we think that the competitive landscape, particularly downstream, is going to get more intensified. Elon's just said it. You can see that in the pricing of his cars as well. The car business is a tough business, not to take anything away from Elon. He's a, obviously a masterful innovator, but you're going to get to a harder place for Tesla to win in that environment the way they have been winning. What we do believe is exciting is the electric metal side of that, which the general disruptive investor has not caught on to the fact that the outsized returns in the electrification of the world will be on the commodity side. And I'm talking copper, lithium, whole host of other metals, nickel, vanadium, smaller ones. We cover them all. <laughs> but for us, we take a risk-graded view there, but, but that's, we do definitely see opportunity there as well. We come full circle to the final area, which I feel like, other than Microsoft, was the one that seems most obvious when you think of the DARP idea. Are there any particular areas of traditional tech that stand out for you guys? I see you guys mentioned cloud, but I see a few credit card companies in there. Any areas that you think are particularly interesting for right now? We own Airbnb. We're a big believer off the bat. From that IPO class, call it the COVID IPO class, it was truly the one that stood out. They had free cash flow out of the gate. I'm a big user of Airbnb. I know there's a lot of haters out there, but when I think about true disruption and I think about a, a phenomenal user experience and how an ecosystem can get built, Airbnb does it right. And it's an incredible business model. It's a top 10 holding for us. When I look at traditional disruptive companies and I say, listen, this is what you should aspire to, aspire to Airbnb. That gets lost in the conversation. Like I have, you guys are in all these different places, but like Airbnb is a true company that if we could have five more Airbnbs, we would like type businesses. I ended up as an Airbnb shareholder, but because of, I'd been an investor in a hotel tonight, which as a cheap bastard fit my budget on when I was traveling. I love Hotel Tonight. They were acquired. I don't think I made any money on the Hotel Tonight part, but Airbnb, I'm a huge fan. Host back in the day, not as much anymore. And then Guest, I think it's a pretty amazing company. You really have a great ecosystem when you enjoy both sides. I've met some phenomenal hosts and the places have been spectacular. When you look at the generation millennial and adjacent, it really is about experiences. Whenever I hear about like, oh, you know, I just go to get a hotel. I'm like, literally my fastest litmus test of how boring you are is if you're like, I just go to the hotel. Like <laughs> you can't even conceptualize that Airbnb has a place and experiences matter. It's just like Boomerville. It just really is like, just put that right in my veins, that boomer right in your veins kind of stuff. And, you know, and listen, there's a lot of great boomers that love Airbnb. It's just that inability to see that 
the hotel model for an entire demographic cohort has been disrupted. And especially with work from home, this concept of we're potentially thinking of an extended stay and we can do that now. Winter gets pretty harsh here in Toronto in January. And we're like, listen, I can go for a month and it's not going to really be a huge den. I don't want to live in a hotel. I got kids. I need a stove. I need all that sort of stuff. It's really opened up so much. Come on down to LA. We got a desk for you. Airbnb is a good example of even post coming public. It was down, what, 50, 60% and gave you really two shots at the plate, you know, in 2022 when it bottomed out and is, seems to be rebounding nicely from there. But it was a good example. A lot of these companies, not just tech, but anything really, people think you got to buy them at any price, but so many give you that opportunity to buy them. Like Apple, I think the classic case study was down at least half in every decade, except for the past one, or down even maybe 75% or something. You wait around long enough and your buy list eventually gets checked off. You just need the fortitude to buy then. That's the harder part. We owned Meta. Yeah, I'd be lying to say I, I wasn't close to getting shaken out of my position. Obviously, I had to have some belief in Mark, but I was getting shook, man. He was talking a lot of crazy talk about the metaverse, you know, that first cartoon. Like, I was like, I'm like, oh, man, <laughs> we're in trouble. <laughs> but we knew the cash flow generation of this. Let's be frank. Mark's not Jack Dorsey. He truly built something that was monetizable. Jack simply couldn't with Twitter. You know, it's kind of you know, the classic like Rocky kind of the snuff that he had to take to get back in the ring and come out swinging in the eighth round. That mindset came back and shares are up buck 40 this year. It's just, But again, that's a classic DARP where when disruption at a reasonable price, Meta's more mature, but truly they're going to be part of a disruptive world. But when deep value DARP hits you in the face, a lot of times you don't want to take it. That's the harder part. At least through this cycle, are you finding a lot of names and opportunity right now? Are there like over the past few years, I think 2021 was a pretty wonky time for a lot of stuff going on, but is this pretty fertile? Some of the stuff you guys are doing is a little off the beaten path on a traditional, I think. Give us the lay of the land. How are you feeling? I think pretty good. You're not in a totally bubbled out place. And with the large caps, you do get the protection. Like these guys are sitting on a heap of cash. Valuations aren't stretched. You have this nice barbell of you can own really safe stuff that's going to be at the heart of disruption, which when you think back in the COVID era, the bubbly era, I'm taking all these runners on things that potentially could work out. Your fishing pool was much more higher risk. AI has actually dropped the risk down because it's a big company game. It's going to be enterprise driven. It'll be the companies that you know. Is it less sexy? Yes. From a like, you know, name brand perspective, like it's not like some sort of like mid cap thingy jiggy, but will it deliver risk adjusted returns that will crush any of those mid caps? Absolutely. So from investors, like absolutely. And then when I look on the resource side, again, natural gas bro here, I'm getting 10% yields to sit on structural 10 year growth. Like incredible. We have this one copper name that it's got a 9% dividend yield. It's a unique one. They're downstream from the largest copper mine in the world. Codalco's plan, they basically treat the wastewater and they get copper out, which it's enough copper to actually make them a mid-sized producer of copper relative to another mid-sized producer in the world. Incredibly well run. It's a no-brainer. You're cleaning up the water and you get copper out of it. And they just do it and edit it out. So for us, that's a super exciting thing. We're bullish on copper from our perspective. That's a huge opportunity where, okay, listen, I can take that company as my core. It'll give me a good yield and I'll get the the pricing upside of copper. Not necessarily the production side of it, but at least I'll get the pricing side of copper. And then we own one of the best in class, I think, next development projects in the world. You kind of manufacture the perfect little copper thing that I want. (laughs) So, and then when you kind of average it out, you're like, oh yeah, that's really value, but it's the way you put it together as opposed to buying, not to pick on any copper stock. There's a lot of copper stocks in tough jurisdictions that screen value and, you know, they're mid-size or whatever, but you're not going to get the same production upside, dividend yield that I've manufactured with these two companies. If that all makes sense. I kind of think about how I can kind of Frankenstein some unique opportunities in the same commodity. I was going to ask you what the most unique name that is in the portfolio that people would kind of be not surprised at, but might not even recognize or even the story. But I think that might win. Is there something that's more unique than that? That's a cool stock story. 
I don't think most would have predicted or seems like a pretty good business model, defensible business model. Is there anything else? Then when you sift through, people are like, huh, what's that? What's going on here? It's usually on our energy security side. Again, highlighting how cheap things are. Lithium names are down 30% this year. Album Merrill is down 30%. Trades on seven times PE. They do a ton of great work on the lithium market. We own it in size. This isn't like bubbly Tesla. <laughs> this, they'll have to buy it from these guys. And I like lithium for one reason. I, you know, I, this may not match your entire criteria, but again, these things fall out of favor. But I like lithium for one reason. It's really a controlled commodity. So the admirals of the world, the SQMs of the world, they will ultimately be the volumes that get sold. And so that's super attractive. And you're not seeing that. The value that I'm seeing is pretty impressive. Our natural gas names really do stick out. Those are the kind of interesting ones. And we take them in size. Cord Energy, top 10 position. Amerigo is a top 10 position as well. If things stick out to us, we believe in the value proposition, we'll own it in size. I think that's part of what attracted me to you guys. There's not a lot of funds or strategies quite like what you guys are doing. And certainly if you're going to wait around in like the large cap growth space, so many of the funds just kind of look like twins of each other. And certainly you're not going to find as many 9% copper yielders in those <laughs> funds. And all of that kind of put it all together, like in the DARP framework, that the idea is to protect downside and reduce the overall volatility of the fund. I think that's what we achieved. For us is that kind of like, how do we capture DARP, the trend over a decade with as smooth of a ride as possible, with as less significant drawdowns as possible as well. So, And it leads me to that little case study here that I wanted to share about Amazon. Let's hear it. So Amazon is probably the most interesting case study. Call it test tube DARP. I know, I know it's probably, you know, probably not, you shouldn't use that term anymore, but for DARP, we can use test tube DARP. In a perfect world, how can I observe DARP and how it works? Amazon's probably the greatest one. Okay, listen, great company, core company, you should have owned an IPO. That's how a disruption at any price investor thinks. I should have owned Amazon right at IPO. That's back in 1997, long time ago. Should have owned it, done incredibly well. That's one investor. A DARP investor says, listen, I don't know where this is going. It's a long time. I don't see anything in the next 10 years. I'm not going to get involved. So if I had perfect hindsight, I would know where the cash flow inflection happens. That cash flow inflection happened in 2015. So cash flow inflection, that's when the cash flow started to go up. That happened in 2015. So now if I was a DARP investor, again, this is a test tube DARP example, with perfect foresight, I would be investing six years prior to that. Now, let's just say I'm a super conservative DARP investor. I need to actually see the cash flow inflect. Then I would buy it. So now I've identified three periods that I would be a disruption at any price investor that's right at IPO, put me in the game, or I invest Six years prior to the cash flow inflection, again, I know when that's happened. So six years prior, but let's just say I got it right. Or I invest at cash flow inflection. You have that quarter, you have that year that's, whoa, this is a juggernaut. Now, let me go through the returns of that. If you were at IPO, you would have had a 32% CAGR out to today. Incredible. There's no question about that. Who wouldn't want that? A DARP investor who bought six years prior, so that would be January 2009, six years prior to cash flow inflection, they would have had a 27% CAGR. That's not terrible. I mean, different. I don't care about what's happened in the past. I really care about my CAGR. That's still a very good CAGR. Then I think, okay, well, listen, what if I invested right at that cash flow inflection point in 2015? I would have 24% CAGR. All of those are incredible numbers. You would normally say, just pick the one with the highest one, easy. But then here's where DARP really comes through. The difference in buying between the IPO is volatility and drawdowns. If you were an IPO investor, Getting shuck out is the number one thing that happens in disruptive investing. If you were an IPO investor, you had six periods of 50% drawdowns, including 2022. Six periods of 50% drawdowns, and your volatility was basically 60%. It was a huge volatility. If you were a DARP investor, you'd had one, and that was in 2022. Not to mention just the greater than 50, you also had a 90 plus percenter, the haymaker of all haymakers. Not many people sit through the 90 plus percent. It might've been 95%. Totally. And so putting it all together, so the volatility is twice. So your sharp ratio, which is your CAGR divided by your volatility is basically twice that of an IPO investor or a disruption at any price investor. But you have drawdowns that are so significant that very few investors I know would have sat through that. So when I think about disruption at any price, 
the test tube version, which is it's an incredible example because everyone's like, I want to own the next Amazon. Coming back to the probabilities of portfolio analytics and everything, why wouldn't I want to stack the deck in, in my favor? And I'm only giving up five percentage points on an already ridiculous return. Like if I get this all right and I got Amazon. But Amazon's a great example of DARP. You look at the numbers and you can see how that sets up. And we've done a lot of other quant work as well, looking at other examples of DARP, looking at back tests and studies, and all of them show the same thing, is that if you have a valuation lens, you stack the deck in your favor every time. And we were fortunate enough with the launch of DARP, our good and bad fortune, but the good fortune was that we calendarized a year in 2022 that was brutal, an absolute brutal market. Our drawdown was basically in line with the S&P 500. And we outperformed competitor funds with significantly higher AUM by 50% because they were down 60% that year. So from our perspective, the nice thing here is all of this is all fine, well, and good. I can take you through all the test tube examples and everything. You're like, I don't know. I still want to own a flying car. Now I can show you legit nav, legit fund performance of how that works. And again, this year we're seeing the same dynamic lagging out the gate. I was okay with it. I was okay with the fluffy disruption running out of the gate in 2023. We weren't that bought our returns. So absolute returns were still good, but all of that has unraveled and more. In an up market in 2023, we're outperforming what I call mainstream disruption at any price. And one thing that we are seeing, and I think investors are getting hip to this, especially with higher interest rates, for the first time, you're seeing unit selling in some of these DAP ETFs. And what was peculiar is that during the huge drawdowns of 2022 and 21 of these strategies, there wasn't selling. You weren't seeing the selling of the units. So you're starting to see some understanding of how interest rates impact disruption at any price. And it's pretty meaningful. Thomas, what's the best place for people to find out, follow you, more information on not just the fund strategy, but your writing too. Where are the best spots? We live on Twitter. We think it's the Coliseum for investing. We're in a very blessed period that we can have such great analysis and we're happy to be part of that. The conversation, the insights is just bar none the best. Scott and I live there, always dropping little gems and nudges, nas. Well, you know, it's Twitter, right? It's kind of bare knuckle boxing. That's great. And then we host some of the biggest industry conferences in commodities. So we've grizzled commodity one-on-one. November 29th, we're doing back-to-back uranium one-on-one and then battery metals one-on-one. And then we're going to do hard money the next day, which is November 30th, which is gold, silver, Bitcoin. Our research, you can find that at grizzleresearch.substack.com. And don't forget etf.grizzle.com. Oh, shoot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> of course, how can I even forget the main product here? All of this greatness gets synthesized into one thing, and that's etf.grizzle.com, which is a DARP. Very cool. Thomas, thanks so much for joining us today. I appreciate it, Matt. Thank you. Podcast listeners will post show notes to today's conversation at mebfaber.com forward slash podcast. If you love the show, if you hate it, shoot us feedback at themebfabershow.com. We love to read the reviews. Please review us on iTunes and subscribe to the show anywhere good podcasts are found. Thanks for listening, friends, and good investing. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.